Um, I'm going to read to you from Mark 11, verses 12 to 26, from the New International Version. Um, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of law heard this and began looking for ways to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins." Well, thanks, Val. I think we need to change the name of our church to the Prayer and Comedy Church. I think everyone's got something to say, which is quite funny. We should need a TikTok handle um, with little snippets of everything that happens on a Sunday. Um, This is quite an interesting passage, as you probably have picked up. There's some parts of it which are highly disputed, so we're going to have fun this morning. Uh, So I encourage you to open your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to pray, because we will need it. And, uh, and we will look at this passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that we can come confidently. Thank you that we can come knowing that it is breathed of the Holy Spirit, that it is your word that you have placed here. Uh, and now as we uh, seek to understand it, Lord, we trust that the Holy Spirit will convict our hearts and uh, show us the truth. Father God, as we come confidently this morning to your word, I pray that you center us, that you help us to... Uh, be focused, and you help us to understand, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know I live next door, and when we arrived, we got some chickens. Uh, And now, when you get chickens, you need to build a coop, and we need to build a run. And you can see there that 
Uh, it's not a very good photo because I took it, but uh, you can see that the, the run, look, it's not looking so good anymore. Uh, but when I built it, oh, I, I, I tell you, I was convinced it was one of the most solid runs ever built. And I can guarantee that I even boasted about that to many of you. Uh, and I have repented of that. Um, <clears throat> but the thing about a secure uh, run and a secure coop is that you don't just keep the chickens in, you keep snakes and foxes and anything else that might want to get the eggs or the chickens out. Now, occasionally a chicken would get out, but I never really had any issues, so I was really confident uh, in my chicken coop and my chicken run. Well, I carried on for a wonderful eight months, or I carried on for a number of years in this wonderful farmyard bliss um, until we got a dog about eight months ago. Now, apparently, it's a dog's job to test whether the chicken run is as solid as you think it is. <laughs> now, I just put out there, dogs are a bit stupid, all right? So, oh, oh. <laughs> so I guarantee that if you got a cat, this would never happen. Um, but our dog would just put its head down and run full ball into the chicken coop until it got through. And you can see on that photo, there's a skateboard, there's all sorts of things now that are get, keeping all the holes and the chickens. There's eskies, and if you walk along my run, there's all sorts of things to keep the dog out and the chickens in. You see, it turns out I may as well have built the run out of feathers. Uh, before no time, that dog... Her name's Coco. Um, she was inside that run ch chasing those chickens in a frenzy. The thing is, my run was shown for what it truly, sorry, what it actually truly is today. See, I thought I'd built a robust, solid structure, but it was I might as well have built a house of cards. It was ready to tumble as soon as the truth was exposed about the structure and how I had built it. So the temple in Jerusalem was the centre of Israel's identity and there was no question that the structure of the temple gave great confidence to the leaders of Israel and gave great confidence to the people. It was the centre of worship, it was the centre of religious life, it was the centre of social life, it was the centre of a person's identity. But what would happen when it was tested by the one who brought the truth into it? What would happen when the structures of the temple systems were exposed for what they truly are? See, would it turn out to be like my chicken run? Or would it hold up to be as it was intended to be built? Secure, solid, the right place of worship built on the right foundation bearing the right fruit for God. Well, this morning we encountered Jesus after his triumphant procession into Jerusalem uh, he's now entering the temple. And when the king of the kingdom brings the truth to a place, what is, that is meant to be the centre of worship, will it stand? Well, if you remember back through Mark, we've been seeing Jesus confronted. He's the one who's been tested so far by the religious elite, the leaders of Israel. He's been challenged in his religious practices, his teaching, his identity's been challenged. But as the gospel has progressed, we've seen an answer forming to the big question, who is this man? And by this time, we should be left with little doubt about who he is. In fact, Mark tells us in the very first verse of the whole gospel 
the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's a spoiler alert. He's he put it out there for us and then he's built it over and over and over again. So as we come into the first part of chapter 11, which Rachel looked at a couple of weeks ago, those who recognised his kingship, his Messiah status, laid the palm branches before him because they recognised he was the rightful king coming to claim his kingdom from the very centre of where it should be claimed, Jerusalem, the city of God. See, this is a pivotal moment. The arrival of the king into the temple, would it stand the test of truth? Well, if you have a look at verse 11 there in chapter 11, we didn't have that read uh, this week, but if you just go back to chapter 11, we see that the first visit to the temple is quite uneventful. We're told Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You see, it was late. They were tired. Jesus went to the temple courts. But I want you not to miss the most important thing which will help us understand the fig tree we are about to talk about now. We are told that he looked around at everything. Everything. The money changes, the selling of animals, and no doubt he was processing what he had seen after he had looked at everything that night. He goes away. They head out to Bethany, which was on the Mount of Olives, about three kilometres away, which is a Sabbath day's walk, I think we're told elsewhere. That's how slow they walked. Verse 12 tells us the next day they were leaving Bethany to head back to Jerusalem. And then we have a curious interaction between Jesus and this fig tree. Have a look at verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, in our backyard also, we have a fig tree. Sorry about the quality of the photos, but we have this fig tree. And each year, it leaves, loses its leaves and it looks like it's dead. It looks like you could never get anything from this fig tree. Then out of nowhere, as spring arrives, you see the new shoots of the leaves suddenly burst out of these what look like dead branches. Uh, it isn't long. Uh, a couple of weeks before it starts looking like that. It happens so quickly. And then it's not too long either when you start seeing little buds of the first fruits, the early fruits uh, coming through. See, while it wasn't the season to harvest figs, we're told in here, there should be some signs of early fruit. Because if you don't have the early fruit on the tree, chances are you're not going to get fruit that harvest. See, the tree that Jesus curses has an abundance of leaves here, but no signs of any fruit, which often they ate early on anyway as they were wandering around. 
See, it should have been expected, but it wasn't yet the season. See, what confronts scholars about this, and it should confront us as well, is the destructive nature of this miracle. This is the only time a miracle is destructive. It either heals, brings life, uh, uh, it just brings, it feeds, whatever it is, it brings something which is missing. But in this instance, Jesus curses and we see a, destruct, a destruction of the fig tree. Well, this is, uh, on, on top of that, we, we, I think what we do when we read this is we often misread emotion into Jesus' uh, actions. So I think this is how we normally read it. He goes to find the figs, they're not there. And he chucks a tantrum like a three-year-old because his mum didn't give him what he wanted. And he goes, that's it, I'm powerful, I'm going to curse you and you can die. And we go, oh, that's unlike Jesus. That can't be true. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think we are imposing things onto this passage we are talking about the Jesus who spent 40 years and 40, uh, 40 years, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted in hunger, in agony. Um, if you are the Son of God, turn those rocks or those stones to bread. No. So the issue isn't his hunger here. He's the one who, who brought forth uh, um, fish and loaves to feed thousands of people out of just a few. See, the issue isn't that it hasn't got figs on it. No, something else is happening here. I think what's happening is he's living out a parable of teaching to his disciples without them even realising it. So you see, he's just seen everything in the temple the night before. And he's about to go in there and cast judgment upon the money changers and the den of robbers and all the structures of the temple. And what he's doing is he's saying that this is a representation of everything that's going on in the temple. You see, this fig tree had no leaves, it was all leaves but no figs. All leaves, no fruit. And he's saying that as we go back into the temple courts, the problem with religion... And the problem with all that's been set up as the structures of the temple is it's all leaves and no fruit. And the statement Jesus is making here about the structures and the religion that has been created by the leaders of Israel can be summed up like this. No fruit, no future. No fruit, no future. If you are not bearing fruit as you are meant to bear fruit, then you will have no future in the kingdom of God. You can't just put on your leaves and put on the show. You can't just be wonderfully religious on the outside, yet bear no fruit for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what Jesus finds when they arrive again at the temple. Now, sorry about how, how small this is, but if you have your Bibles, you can read along there. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned uh, the tables of the money uh, changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed and because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now just to give you some context, this was a very busy time at the temple. Passover was coming and people were coming from all over the lands, all over the known world even, to come and worship at the temple for Passover. Now, it wasn't practical to bring your slaughtered animal or bring your live animal and slaughter it there. So what they would do is they would bring their money, change them at the money changers' tables, and then go over and buy their sacrifices in order to be able to worship as they should have been able to worship. And so in some respects, it makes sense. The system was that they would be able to worship... And so this was put in place. The problem was it was kind of like Paddy's markets on steroids, dead animals everywhere being sold, but in a way which had nothing to do with worship. They were making money. They were lifting prices. They were just in it to make money. They had turned the temple courts into a big bazaar. And they were just making money. They weren't there to try to make sure that people could worship properly. This is about the heart. They were displaying the fruit of sin rather than the fruit of God. And this was all endorsed by those leading the temple. And I have no doubt they were scraping some off the top. So what was the fruit Jesus expected to find? Well, he says he was expecting a house of prayer for all nations. What a great contrast. A big Paddy's Market Bazaar going everywhere compared to people praying in worship. But that's not what he found. And Jesus is quoting a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Uh, it's a prophecy that is saying that God's salvation is not only for Israel but his plan is for all nations. Yet what's the progress being made? Nothing. Even Israel aren't worshipping him well. well. I want to read you uh, that, uh, that quote because it's, it's quite insightful and it comes from Isaiah chapter 56 verses... Uh, I'm going to read from verse 3 to 7. I'm going to have it up here. Um, you might need to get your micro... Uh, micro whatever, right up to the screen. It's, it's so small, sorry. But um, if you've got your Bible, you can open it. But just listen, just listen. This is what God says. Let no foreigner, so that's anyone who's not a true Israelite, who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. But here we have exclusion. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. 
and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So here's the vision that's been given to Israel about who they are becoming. And the king of the kingdom goes to the center place of worship, the temple, and finds nothing of the sort. Nothing. The court of the Gentiles, the temple courts, was the only area those who were not Israelites by birth could enter. So in other words, all nations could enter that place in the temple. And I am just going to give you a brief look there. So that is the temple. And in the centre you see that you have the temple itself, that's the taller building. Uh, You have the inner courts, which basically are those buildings around And then if you have a look, you've got the large space outside of that to the outer wall, but there's there's like a circle which puts a line to it, but there's like a a railing or it might have been a lattice. Uh, You can see the line uh, there. That is the boundary to which the Gentiles could go. So anything outside of that is the temple courts, the Gentile courts. And so we're talking about... Uh, that's where all nations could worship. They weren't allowed beyond that um, in the ordinances and the the ways that uh, the, the sacrificial system was set up. And the idea is, well, God is a holy God. He lives in the temple, and you have to be uh, you have to be uh, you have to be ceremonially clean to even go into uh, near that space. But only the in the holy of holies inside the temple, only the high priest once a year. So it's almost like you have to be holier the more that you go towards the temple. But that's not the vision God has. See, all nations other than Israel had to stay away. But it was still meant to be a place of worship. It was still meant, the courts were meant to be a house of prayer. And who were the ones should be driving that? Well, the leaders of Israel. They should be seeking to fulfill the prophecies and to see it fulfilled that all nations worship God. It was always God's plan and it should have always been uh, that way. You see, no fruit, no future. So Jesus overturns the tables in judgment. He declares judgment upon the structures of the temple, just as he had on the fig tree, and he exposes them as weak like my chicken run and as the king of the kingdom comes to restore the kingdom. See, what he's saying is that those who are truly worshipping will bear fruit, and that fruit is prayer. Prayer is accessible to all nations. That is the first fruit of true faith. That is the first fruit of worship. We pray. When you know and worship the living and true God, it isn't just prayer, as anyone can do. This is an expression of a relationship with the one who has revealed himself to you, as God had done to Israel. 
Prayer is personal, meaningful and powerful in its confidence because of the personal relationship between God and his people. See, no prayer means no fruit. No fruit means no future. And as Jesus enters the temple, he finds nothing of the fruit that he should have found. If you are not living a life of prayer, you are all leaves and no figs. Maybe this is a time for us at the beginning of the year to all check our prayer life. Is your life all leaves, no figs? See, if we as a church are not living by prayer, we are all leaves and no figs. Well, he goes on to declare the reason we have no fruit, the reason we do not pray, pray is that there is no faith. You see, the foundation isn't the fruit. The foundation, Jesus goes on to say, is faith. Have a look at verse, uh, verse 19. Not sure I've got it up there. Let me just read it to you. When evening came, he and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning they went along and saw the fig tree withered. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus' response in verse 22 is, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. He then goes on to say, Valerie, I tell you, if anyone says this to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer... Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now I think this is probably the most misrepresented passage in all of scripture in our day. Now you may have bought into the idea um, that the application of this passage around your prayer life is that, uh, is, is that effectively if you ask and you believe enough, then you will get whatever you ask for. And maybe this passage has left you in the state of not praying. Maybe it's this passage why you have no fruit in your life because of how you've heard it applied and how you've heard it taught. See, how people apply it is effectively the name it and claim it theology of prayer. You name it, you believe enough, God will give it to you. Well, I think that's a load of garbage. I don't think that that's what's happening here. I think that's from our world. In fact, our world loves this. They call it manifestation or self-actualization. They put an idea out into the universe and they believe enough. And trust me, I spent time in the New Age movement before I became a Christian. And the idea is you, you put your idea to the universe and you believe that it will happen and the universe will conspire all around you and it will happen for you. That's where that theology comes from. 
It's a syncretization of our world's thinking. And isn't it a lovely thought, though, that I can be anything I want, Delta Goodrum tells me. I was going to apply for Australian Idol because I think I could, you know, if I believed enough, I could sing like Delta. See, but that's how our world's going because they're grasping on something. I need to have hope. Where does my hope come from? Well, it must come from me. And that's what that idea does. It puts all the hope in you. It all puts all the trust in you. It puts all the faith in you. As long as I believe enough, I will get it. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, I want you to look at verse 23. And once again, he says again, Valerie. You'll never leave that down. Valerie and all your friends who are in the room with you, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, don't miss that. He doesn't say a mountain. He doesn't say the blue mountains. He says this mountain. Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. See, he's on his way back to the Temple Mount. And from a distance, I believe he is referring to this Temple Mount and the religious structures in the context of all that's happening around this passage. He is looking at all the exclusion that his followers and those who, he, who have laid palm branches are down at his feet. All the exclusion and all the, all the not worthy and, and all those questions from Isaiah. Surely God will never accept me. Well, that's your religious structures that are excluding people in order to raise up a select few in order for them, in their pride, to hold firm the power that God has given them. But he's saying this is not the way. If you believe in your heart all of that, well, trust me, it will be cast into the sea. You see, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He is about to destroy and fulfill all of those religious requirements. The fulfillment of those religious requirements by his life, death and resurrection means that the temple curtain is torn in two. The holy of holies, access to God, prayer with God, the love of God, being a child of God, being brought into God's family is now being being opened up and all the religious ordinances that have kept you at a hand's distance have been destroyed. That mountainous that is visually being able to be seen right there as they've just been in there will be cast to the sea. And by faith, he says, have faith in God, you will be saved. Why? Because of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the very one who is telling Valerie and all of us to have faith, have faith and to pray. And why does he reference forgiveness? Because that's exactly how all of this is destroyed. 
By that faith, you are forgiven. You are set free from that burden because Christ has paid the punishment for you. His life for your life, your sin on him, on the cross, dealt with, raised again to life. Our hope is now not in getting everything that we want in this world. I can guarantee you go out there and ask that mountain to go into the sea, nothing's going to happen. Because that's not what he's telling us. But I can guarantee that if you hold firm in your faith through the, through the trials, through the pain, through the suffering, through the treatment, through everything that so many people are going through in this space, well, you don't have to fear the future. You don't have to fear death. One of the great privileges for me is to visit people, I have to say, as they are nearing the end of their life. And you can imagine I've done that a few times with Roz over these last few weeks. And I asked her the question, are you at peace? And she said, God is always the centre of my life. She didn't have to fear the fact God didn't heal her on this earth. What an empty, shallow promise to tell someone that if you believe enough, God will heal you. That is shallow. No, the one who suffered for you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you will fear no evil. For my rod and my staff, they will comfort you. See, suffering is actually one of, the, one of the core issues here. Suffering will come. But the one who has enabled us to suffer well is the one who has suffered for us. And there is nothing that you go through that he does not understand. So where does that leave us? Well, it drives us through that faith in him, in his death, to fruit. And what is that fruit? Prayer. And what is prayer? The full recognition that you need to rely on God. And he says, if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. And it will be yours. Trust me, there's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. There is a healing, a wiping of your tears, from his, uh, his, your tears from your eyes. There is a time and a place where you will be set free from all of this. You will receive it because you have faith in God and you have asked for it. And you've come to him in humility. And that you are not all leaves and no figs. You are full of figs. Simply because each morning you come to him and you say, Lord... This day is yours. I entrust it to you. Or maybe as Jesus, you say, if there is another way, please take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. See, that is the prayer of faith. And our great saviour tells us here, put your faith in God, because faith brings fruit, brings future. Faith brings fruit, brings future. Heavenly Father, we...
we come before you this morning and we, it's confronting to, I guess, be challenged to bear fruit for the kingdom. And Father, we know that through prayer, all things are possible simply because you are the powerful one. You are the one in control. You are the one who is able to make things happen. But you are the one who will work all things for the good of those who love you. Father, it's hard to surrender our lives and give over that control of wanting to say, well, I want this happen, so you should make it happen to whatever your will be done, Lord. Father God, I pray for anyone here this morning who is journeying suffering at the moment, and that's many of us. I pray that you will help them to come to you and hand it and surrender it to you, knowing that through their faith, you will restore, you will heal, you will renew, whether that's in this life or the next. Father God, I pray that you will bless us as we go from here. Help us to be a church full of faith, full of figs, full of fruit, full of prayer. And Father God, we pray that through that, through that faithfulness, you will bless us abundantly, not for our own sake, but for your sake, so that your kingdom can grow and many will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.